guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building in 24 degree weather with an hour less sleep than you usually have. It's probably the closest thing to suffering that we're going to experience, at least in the near future. You made it. That's awesome. Um, If we haven't met, my name's Jamie. Uh, I'm the guy who gets to most weeks uh, open up the scriptures and uh, expound them for God's people as we gather in this place as a means of grace. And and we're surely going to do that again this morning. I mentioned this last week, if you weren't here, just to catch you up to speed. Uh, We're on a different kind of journey of sorts as we uh, continue uh, on this journey through the book of Luke that we've been in for now almost a a year and a half, I I believe. And the second of those journeys simultaneously that we're making is the journey toward the establishment of local elders and deacons. If you explore some of the documentation of our church, statement of faith, bylaws, partnership booklet, you'll you'll come across the kind of language that captures the, the following understanding of church government. Namely, that the church is to be led by a plurality of biblically qualified pastor elders who are themselves under the kind and gentle authority of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the apostle who plants the church, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus is the senior pastor who leads the church, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. That Jesus is the head of the church, Colossians chapters 1 and 2. It's Jesus who grows and builds a church, uh, Hebrews 16, 18. And it's Jesus who shuts down churches for being faithless and fruitless, Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. That Jesus is the the reason, the foundation, the purpose for why the church even exists. And therefore, it's vital that as a church, we love, obey, imitate, and follow Jesus at all times and in all ways according to the teaching of his word. That's been true of this church from day one, that we put Jesus at the the top of the org chart, so to speak, and that it's in submission to Jesus and under the authority of Jesus that the offices of the church have been established. Namely, the office of elder, the elders being the servant leaders under Jesus, and the office of deacon, the deacons being the lead servants in and of the church. As we move closer to the establishment of local elders and deacons, it's important, it's critical that that we're all clear on what the scriptures teach about these offices of the church. I mentioned this last week that we're a non-denominational church that's a part of a non-denominational network, the Acts 29 network, and with that, Uh, We bring in, we draw in people from all kinds of backgrounds. I would venture to guess that in your church experiences and the traditions that you grew up in, that there's a representation in this very room of people who have been led by bishops and who have been under the leadership of presbyteries and who have been a part of congregational uh, church expressions where people vote on all matters of the church with their yeas and their nays and all that comes into this place uh, this morning, when you add to that that we're in a context that is hyper-churched and under-gospeled, well, you, then you just add to that reality that people are all the more are drawn in simply because we seek to be faithful to preach God's word and keep the gospel at the center of everything we do. And so there's a, a, a charitable spirit that exists in this, in this uh, church body. Uh, there, there's a, a willingness uh, to extend a hand across the aisle as it pertains to, to secondary and tertiary matters. 
even among those who would affirm a, an elder-led model of church government as we would, there are a variety of perspectives as to what kind of person an elder should be and what kind of responsibilities an elder should embrace. And so last week, we spent some time with the story of the anointing of David, a story that turns the entire worldly approach to leadership assessment upside down on its head. And I hope you were encouraged by that. If we're honest, there's a part of us that we want a king like the nations, a leadership team that, that looks like the world's notions of success. And yet most of the qualifications for eldership have to do with Christian character, not personality type, not entrepreneurial giftedness, not business acumen, though those things are, are fine and good. That what God is after are men after his own heart. Not perfect men, but repentant men. Committed to giving their lives for the glory of the one perfect man, Jesus Christ. That was the focus of last week. And so this morning represents part two of a two-week mini-series, you might say, as we continue to explore in an introductory way the topic of biblical eldership. This morning, focusing our attention on the responsibilities of an elder not only that we might better understand this office of the church as presented in God's word in contrast to the many expressions of church leadership out there that have no grounding in the scriptures, but two, that we might marvel at Jesus who is the only perfect leader and shepherd of the church. And I want to do so by directing our attention to Acts chapter 20. That's where we're going to start. We'll camp out there and then we'll kind of explore other passages of scripture along the way. But if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there to begin with. If you don't have a Bible, you'll be able to track with everything up on the screen behind me as we work our way through that passage and a few others. And let me just mention this right out of the gate, and then I'll pray and we'll jump in. Just like last week, there is a, a, a broad application for all of us. I've had a few people reach out just this past week wanting to talk about a desire to grow into deeper Christ-likeness. That's really cool when you're diving into a series on biblical eldership and it seems like the application might be so specific that it, it might not hit very many people. And I trust that that'll be the case this morning in a different way as we see that in the framing up of what biblical eldership looks like in terms of the responsibilities that, that there's, there's a place for us in that framework in a, in a broad general sense as the saints as well. Okay, so, so just... Setting that up to begin with before we even jump in. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll dive into God's word together. Heavenly Father, had you not sent your son to be, die on behalf of lost sinners, there would be no church to discuss. There would be no church government to explore. Jesus, praise you that you stepped into the brokenness of our world to live the perfect life that we could never live, to die the sinner's death that we deserve to die in our place. Three days later, to rise from the grave and triumph over Satan's sin and death. And in that, to establish a people for yourself, the church. You love the church more than any of us. You're the one who died for her, for us. Even the very way that you've laid out and shaped what church government would look like 
be in such a way that only you and you alone could receive the glory as we'll see this morning. And I praise you for that. I'll be honest, it frustrates my soul at times as a leader in the church, but I get it. And when I, I set aside any notions that it's about me, I understand it and I love it. I pray that we all would. I pray that we would all see the beauty of how you've established the church in terms of her governance, in terms of the framework of leadership. I pray that we would all see our place in terms of what it means to be one body, many members. To embrace our own roles, each of us, all of us. To be a part of the advancement of your kingdom for your glory. Holy Spirit, would you move in power as we sit with the scriptures in hand this morning? Would you open our eyes to, to see perhaps where we've been blinded in terms of our understanding of what church leadership should be? Would you open our hearts to receive it, that which we see in the scriptures, to embrace it happily? Holy Spirit, as I say often, if you don't move in power, this will be surely an exercise in futility. So please, I plead with you. plead with you to give us a feeling sense of your presence as we sit with the very scriptures that you inspired. And I pray that in doing so, you would receive the glory and that the joy would be ours for having done this yet another Lord's day. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, that I pray. Amen. So Acts chapter 20 gives us a window into the, the formalization of the early church, the events recorded there having taken place on the third of the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. In the wake of Paul, not only having planted many churches, but, but two, having strengthened many of those churches in the wake of their formation. As you pick up the story in verse 17, Paul has set his sights on the city of Jerusalem with the aim of returning in time for the celebration of Pentecost on a boat traveling down the western coast of Asia, having chosen not to stop in Ephesus, the book of Acts tells us, knowing that the many relationships that he had established there would slow down his progress, and yet a layover in the city of Miletus presents Paul with a unique opportunity, one that gives us a window into the formalization of leadership in the early church. If you pick up in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20, Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, in addition to the book that bears his name, tells us, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, Paul did, and called the elders of the church to come to him. The layover of Paul's ship gives him just enough time to send for the Ephesian elders, a chance to leave them with some parting words. What we now identify as the only major speech to Christians in all of the book of Acts. Every other speech having an evangelistic bent to it. He goes on in verse 18, and when they came to him, the elders of Ephesus, he, Paul, said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
love the way Paul begins this address as he expresses what it is to bear testimony to the gospel. He says, I, I testified to the gospel with both my lips and my life. The gospel displayed in the life of the apostle Paul in his serving the Lord with all humility and tears, verse 19. And, and with that, courage to face the trials that happen through the plot of the Jews. Courageous humility as a both and. That's what the gospel produces. It destroys the pride in our hearts on the one hand, declaring to us that we're so bad that Jesus had to die for us. And at the same time, it destroys the crippling effect, uh, uh, effects of despair, declaring to us that we're so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. The gospel bringing forth the fruit of both courage and humility, which we see in the life of the apostle Paul. On the one hand, Paul was committed to serving the Lord with all humility, patterning his life after the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A servant-hearted humility coupled with tears, Paul tells us, as he came face to face with the brokenness of human hearts and the world. Like Jesus in his feeding of the 5,000 who looked out on the crowd with great compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Like Jesus in his encounter with Mary in the wake of Lazarus' death, where he was deeply moved in his spirit and wept. On the one hand, the gospel produced a Christ-like humility and compassion in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. On the other hand, it produced a courage to face the trials and persecution brought on by the Jews. Like Jesus, too, in his unwavering resolve to journey down the Calvary Road who for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12, endured the cross. Paul's tears, not only tears of compassion, but of courage. As he goes on to say that it was with tears, verse 31, that he did not cease night or day to admonish everyone. Which gets into Paul's proclamation of the gospel. That yes, Paul displayed the gospel in Courage and humility, serving the Lord with all humility and tears and with trials. But he didn't just display the gospel. He also declared the gospel. Refusing to shrink from declaring anything profitable, verse 20. And his teaching them in public and from house to house. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God, verse 21. And of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Out of the overflow of the heart... The mouth speaks. Paul's heart was full of Jesus, and therefore he told people of the good news of Jesus everywhere he went. It was always a both and for the Apostle Paul in bearing testimony to the gospel. Word and deed, lips and life. An incredibly helpful model not only for the Ephesian elders to imitate, but for all of us who profess to love and follow Jesus. He goes on in verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only my, I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, Paul says, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. 
You might be thinking, when are, when are we going to get to the stuff on elders? And the answer is, we already have. Remember, the, the entirety of this speech is for the elders of Ephesus. Not just the imperatives, the commands to come. As the heart of servant leadership is, is expressed from Paul's very first word of this speech to his very last. Here Paul shifts from the past to the future. And yet it's still more of the same humble courage in looking to the days ahead, the days to come. Resolved to go to Jerusalem, Paul is, just as Jesus had resolved to go to Jerusalem. In Paul's case, to complete the ministry that he had received from the Lord Jesus. As in Jesus' case, it was to complete the ministry he had received from the Father. That Paul was willing to suffer for Christ as Christ was willing to suffer for Paul. Paul had come to know a Jesus worth both living and dying for. I think this passage presents all of us with a question. Have we come to know that Jesus? Are we constrained by the Spirit to be spent and to spend our lives for His glory? Paul continues on in verse 26. Therefore... I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And Paul knows that, that he won't see this man, these men ever again. So he leaves them with their marching orders. And in doing so, he gives us a window into his understanding of the role and responsibilities of an elder. In the 21st century American evangelical church, there's been this shift toward a business model of leadership rather than a biblical one, a model in which the, the roles of pastor and elder have been separated. Pastors being the paid clergy who do the work of ministry, elders setting the budget, voting on business matters, making sure the pastors are doing their job. That's an incredibly unbiblical model, by the way. Because the scriptures never once make that kind of distinction. In fact, the, the terms elder, pastor, and overseer, those terms are used interchangeably in the scriptures to refer to the, the same person or group of leaders. In Acts chapter 20, we don't have to leave this morning's uh, grounding passage to see it. If you go back to verses 17 and 18 and then skip ahead to verse 28... This is how it reads. Now from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church, it's the Greek word presbyteros, to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you, the elders, overseers, episkopos. To do what? To care for, poimen, to shepherd, it's where we get the word pastor, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Or how about 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2? 
So I exhort the elders among you, presbyteros, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. What does Peter say to these elders? Shepherd, poimen, pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising what? Oversight, episkopos, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. That the terms elder, pastor, and overseer are used interchangeably in Scripture so that to be an elder is to be a pastor is to be an overseer. The various titles simply helping to explain the nature of the various responsibilities of the one office. As as I once heard a, a pastor in our network say, in my household I have the titles of husband to my wife, father to my children, and head of household to the IRS. So those titles, they're all various aspects of the one role or office, namely the leader of a family. Same is true of the leadership of a church. The various titles presented in Scripture expressive of the various aspects of the one role or office. Having said that, let me, let me take just a few minutes to lay out those responsibilities, most of which we see in this morning's passage. If I were going to present it in a list, And I'll work on this list over the course of the years to come and refine it. But this is what I have for you as of today. Would look something like this. Ministry of the word and prayer. Acts chapter 6 verse 4. Ruling or leading the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 17. Managing the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 4 and 5. Caring for people in the church. 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 2 through 5. Giving account to the Lord for the church, Hebrews 13, 17. Living exemplary lives, Hebrews 13, 7. Rightly using the authority God has bestowed, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Teaching the Bible correctly, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Preaching for some elders, we'll get into that in a minute. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Praying for the sick, James chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. Teaching sound doctrine and refuting false teachings, Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Working hard, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. Rightly using money and power, again, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3. Protecting the church not just from false teaching, but false teachers, Acts chapter 20, this morning's passage. And lastly, disciplining unrepentant Christians in participation with the whole church at times, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Now, here's the reality. The truth is that most of us will forget most of that list less than two minutes after we move on to the next sermon slide. And so let let me try to frame a list like that in a way that's manageable, perhaps a little easier to remember. We talk often as a church about the threefold Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king, all of which find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. That as the prophets of old spoke God's words to the people, so Jesus is the faithful witness who came not only proclaiming the word of God, but who is the word of God, the very fulfillment of the words of the prophets who came before him. That as the priests of old offered sacrifices and prayers to the Lord on behalf of the people, so Jesus, our great high priest, not only offered the once for all sacrifice, but is the once for all sacrifice for sin, who now lives to intercede for us and draw us into the very presence of God. 
That as the kings of old ruled over the people as God's chosen representatives, so Jesus not only rules and reigns over the church, but the entirety of creation as the king of kings and lord of lords, far above all rule and power and authority and dominion. Amen? Now, what's the point of expressing these things other than to make much of the glory of Christ? And that's a good enough reason. And the answer is that Jesus has established that the eldership of a church would imitate each of these three roles in a subordinate way in which he and he alone might receive the glory. And so if I could sort of frame it, and this would be the the slide to take a picture of this morning, if you want to walk away and sort of capture it and and steep in it. We're going to work our way through this framework of prophet, priest, and king and see how church leadership is meant to encompass these things under the authority of the Lord Jesus, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And so an elder is prophet, and I use that term in quotation marks loosely. We're not talking synonymously uh, with the prophets of old in the Old Testament. An elder is prophet in terms of the proclamational ministry that an elder is responsible for is about the ministry of the word, Acts chapter 6, verse 4. The teaching and safeguarding of sound Christian doctrine. Coming back to this morning's passage, Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27. Therefore, Paul says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Here the Apostle Paul passes the baton, so to speak, having declared the whole counsel of God to the Ephesian elders, no longer responsible moving forward for the doctrinal integrity of the Ephesian church. And with that, a call to action in not only teaching sound doctrine, but protecting the church from false teaching. Only a few verses later, Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. The elders of the church not only feed the flock the green grass of God's word, but protect the flock from the twisted words of ravaging wolves. It's why Paul would say to Timothy that an elder must be able to teach, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, in addition to the character qualifications that we looked at last week. Perhaps even clearer in articulating the both end of teaching and safeguarding would be Titus chapter 1, verse 9, where Paul says to Titus, an elder or overseer must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to, on the one hand, give instruction in sound doctrine, and on the other hand, also rebuke those who contradict that sound doctrine. And then there's 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. But not every elder may preach, as the qualification for eldership is not an ability to preach, but an ability to teach. It's a very different word in the Greek than the word translated preach. In fact, I would go so far as to say that a man could preach from the pulpit for the first time After having become an elder and in falling flat on his face, he would not have disqualified himself from the office. Some elders preach, all elders teach. And by teach, 
And here's another clarifier. It doesn't necessarily mean in a formal setting. It's not that a man must be able to lead a Sunday school class to be an elder or a membership class or an equip gathering. Those things didn't exist in the first century church. It's... It's that a man knows how to apply and defend sound Christian doctrine wherever he finds himself. That the word of God in which he delights, it comes out of him. A man who prays the word, whose prayers bring the saints back to the scriptures, the soundness of the doctrine that we hold so dear. A man who counsels the word, whose shepherding of the sheep brings the scriptures to bear in their lives. A man who lives the word, his life a help rather than a hindrance to people's deeper understanding of the faith for which we contend. And for some elders, a man who preaches the word and whose preaching is rooted in the scriptures and gives instruction in sound doctrine. That's the elder as as prophet, the the top of the triangle. And then there's the elder as, as priest, And again, let me clarify that. I don't mean that in the Roman Catholic sense of the term. Rather, we're talking about the shepherding aspect of eldering. The shepherding of, the caring for, and protection of the flock. And with that, prayer, interceding for the church and bringing the saints before the Lord. Again, coming back to this morning's passage, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then there's 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Here both Paul and Peter are talking about the shepherding of the flock, bringing comfort to the bereaved, bringing counsel for those in need, interceding on behalf of the saints, particularly those feeble and without strength. James chapter 5 verse 14, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray for him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Notice that there's something bi-directional here. It's not just the elders calling upon the saints, but the saints calling upon the elders. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. That's a principle, broadly speaking, that extends beyond sickness to those experiencing any and all forms of suffering, sorrow, and need. That at times, James expects that the saints will be the one calling out to the elders knowing that the elders won't always know when and where there's need. And with that need, a willingness on the part of the sheep of the flock to invite the eldership of the church into that need. We know that this shepherding piece is part of what it means to be an elder, not not only because we see it in passages like these, but too because of the nature of the qualifications of eldership. If you come back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, An elder or overseer must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
Or Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul says to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This language of managing one's own household, it has to do with both the priestly and kingly responsibilities of an elder. Both bottom points of that triangle. From a priestly standpoint, Paul's concerned about care for the church, the shepherding of the church, the tending to the flock. And yet from a kingly standpoint, the word manage carries it with it the idea of presiding or ruling over, leading the flock in decision-making and by example. And since there's this both and, since this, these passages apply to both, it's appropriate to consider it now as we look at the priestly responsibilities of an elder. Why these qualifications? The Lord cares about how one manages his home, how one cares for his little flock, his wife, if he's married, his children, if he has kids. It goes back to the parable of the dishonest manager. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Faithful in the little flock gives good indication of faithful with the bigger flock, the church. One might ask, does this exclude men without wives or children from eldership? On the one hand, and on the flip side, does having children who aren't Christians disqualify a man? We don't dance around the scriptures as a church. Um, it would be far easier to just kind of uh, edit this part out and pretend like these verses don't exist. Because there's a lot of nuance here. Uh, there are good arguments. And I'm going to bring them to you. Because I, I, I want us to, to look at the fullness of what Scripture teaches about biblical eldership. As it pertains to the first of those two questions, as I mentioned last week, I, I'm hesitant to embrace any interpretation that would preclude not only the Apostle Paul, but Jesus Christ himself from eldership. After all, Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church, the one who grants authority to the eldership, the under-shepherds of any church. And that's in line with a, with a great many theologians and scholars who understand Paul to be setting forth a standard for those who are husbands and fathers. The general principle being that an elder should be someone who's already engaged in effective shepherding and care. With his wife, if he has a wife, and his children, if he has children, expressing something of a shepherd's heart before he becomes an elder, not once he becomes an elder. What about the second of those two questions? Does having children who aren't Christians disqualify a man? I mean, at first glance, the, the answer may seem obvious. After all, Paul does say to Titus that an elder's children are believers. And yet, scholars are divided on the answer to that question as there are two different conclusions that faithful interpreters of the scriptures have reached. Some believe that an elder's children must be Christians and that if a man's children abandon the faith, he's no longer qualified to be an elder. While others, and this is where I land, believe that 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are actually saying the same thing. That the word translated believers, it's the Greek word pistos, which can also be translated and oftentimes is translated in Scripture as faithful. 
Again, coming back to the parable of the dishonest manager, which we sat with just two weeks ago, Luke chapter 16. One who is faithful, that very same Greek word in a very little, is also faithful in much. Sometimes context is, is critical to help make sense of which way to interpret things. It would be weird to say one who is believing in a very little is also believing in very much. Because in that particular instance of Luke 16, we're talking about stewardship. If Paul means that an elder's children must be Christians, I mean, it's strange that he would establish a more lenient standard with Timothy than with Titus. If Paul means that an elder's children must be faithful, obedient, and respectful, well, that reveals Paul's standards to be one and the same with both Timothy and Titus. And two, I would say, it seems to make more sense in the context of what Paul is arguing for, namely the shepherding and managing of one's own household. Right? None, none of us can shepherd nor manage our kids into the kingdom. If you've tried it, you've failed. Salvation, it's a supernatural work of the Lord. But we can bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 leading our families in accordance with the servant leadership and sacrificial love characterized by Jesus Christ. And that's what I believe Paul has in mind here. Again, having to do with the priestly and kingly responsibilities of an elder. And so let me just jump into that last point of the triangle of this framing. What can we say about the kingly aspects of, of, of eldering a, a church? having looked at the elder as prophet and priest, well, the kingly responsibilities of an elder have to do with governance and direction, the, the leading of the flock in decision-making and by example. Again, coming back to this morning's passage, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The word overseer, carrying with it the idea of a superintendent. The exercising of a leadership role. You see it in a number of other places in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Or how about Titus 1, 7. For an overseer as God's steward. There's a stewardship aspect must be above reproach. And then there's Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. There's a submission and an authority in leading the church. These are terrifying terms. I understand it because of abuse that's happened in the life of the church throughout the course of church history. And yet it's in the Bible and we submit our experiences and our, our cultural expressions to the scriptures. We look through the lens of scripture not to interpret our circumstances or what culture, even church culture is saying. Not the other way around. Elders are to lead the flock, to govern the flock, to manage and direct the flock with the heart of a shepherd every step of the way, which I think helps to make sense of why there's that bleed over as Paul talks about these things. He wants to make sure that, that as an elder considers those kingly responsibilities that he doesn't do so in a way that abandons the shepherding aspect of it all and the heart of a shepherd in it all. 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3. Exercising oversight, the eldership of a church, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, 
And here it is. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I said this last week. Eldership is not a platform for the feeding of egos and the wielding of heavy hands. It's an opportunity to display the the servant leadership of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial love characterized by Jesus Christ. The loving, tender, and nurturing care of a godly man who is himself under the kind and gentle authority of the Lord Jesus. Notice that, and I find this fascinating. Notice that Peter doesn't say, if you get your church polity, your church government right, you won't have dangers of abuse. He doesn't skirt the issue. He addresses the dangers of a ruling function without abandoning the governance model of a plurality of elders. I mean, here's the the reality. Every form of church government that you'll read about in a systematic theology book can be abused in some way. Because they're, they're all inhabited in their form by sinners saying I do to each other. Uh, Episcopal forms of church government, it's possible that a bishop would abuse his power and authority at some point. Presbyterian forms of church government, it's possible at a local level or a regional presbytery level or a national general assembly level that someone would abuse power and authority at some point. In a congregational model, it's possible that All of those moments where the votes on every matter of the church are happening would be abused by the very congregation herself in terms of power and authority. And same thing is true with a plurality of elders in in any local church. And so the worst thing that we could do, and I alluded to this just a moment ago, is to determine where we land on the issue of church government on the basis of our past experiences or on the basis of what culture, even church culture, is presenting us with. The best thing we can do is come back to the scriptures and to reason from the scriptures what the scriptures teach about church government and to say, let's go there and let's acknowledge, as Peter does, that can be abused just as much as anything else. Elders are to to make decisions and give direction, to oversee church discipline and exercise stewardship, to set goals and cast vision without exercising lordship over the flock in doing so, without domineering over those in their charge. To paraphrase a fellow pastor in our network, kingly leadership is not just about skillful hands, but integrity of heart. Coming back to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, It's leading out of humility and courage. It's leading out in both of those things, the kind of humility and courage worth emulating. Which brings me to a couple of of things coming out of our time in the scriptures this morning. It should come as no surprise that Jesus would establish the office of elder such that he and he alone would receive the glory. The elders of the church imitating in a subordinate way each of these three roles of prophet, priest, and king, all the while reminding the church by way of their imperfections both individually and collectively as a plurality that there's only one perfect prophet, priest, and king. Typically, if an elder preaches good sermons, he's up for scrutiny in terms of his shepherding or his kingly leadership. If an elder is a good shepherd, his sermons could probably be better and he could 
do a better job with strategic systems, if he's a champ with spreadsheets and diagrams, his sermons could probably be better and he could probably shepherd a little bit better. I've yet to meet an elder who is stellar in all three. In fact, in our network, we talk in the terms of, of two out of three at best. So we kind of talk, talk with other brothers in, in Acts 29. Where, where, what are you, a, a prophet king? That's typically a lead pastor role. You preach and you lead the church. Some are priest prophets and you, you kind of get into the, the, the terminology that includes two, but nobody's arrogant enough to walk around going, I'm a prophet, priest, king. I'm all three and I kill it at all, all of them. And so then we, we look for our hope oftentimes. If you've ever seen the cartoon Captain Planet, this idea that, oh, well, maybe by our powers combined, we can create this superhero sort of thing. Maybe if we just have a team, now all of a sudden, we'll, we'll actually somehow find our way really close to the perfection of Jesus. And it just doesn't work no matter how you chop it up. Because there are too many ways to try to create diversity on an elder team. You get certain forms of diversity just right and you abandon other forms. We just can't seem to get there. And I think that's beautiful when it's not driving me batty. Jesus has established the office of elder such that he and he alone receive the glory. Drives me nuts when criticism comes and it makes my heart happy when I remember that it's not about me. Which brings me to the second thing, and it has to do with you, the church. Last week when we talked about the, the character qualifications for eldership, I mentioned that we should all aspire to these things regardless of our place in the church. And, and in some sense, the same is true this morning. The elders of a church have their responsibilities, yes and amen. And the same is true of the saints. So I would ask you, and maybe that framing is helpful for you as you consider, you know, the, the, the prophet piece. The church is, is called to teach and admonish one another. As you consider the, the framing of all this, and you might ask, what kind of gifts do I have? Maybe they're administrative, and maybe they support the kingly aspects of moving the church forward. Maybe they fall more in line with the, the shepherding and care and intercession piece of it all. There is a broad expression of these things that's beautiful for the saints to participate in. And so I would ask you, in what ways has the Lord gifted you? What might it look like to leverage your gifts in humble, courageous service? We have an opportunity to glorify Jesus as the one body, many members that we are. That metaphor, too, reminding us that not one of us individually can accomplish everything. Reminding us yet again that there's only one who's worthy to receive the glory, the head of the body, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Sermon done.